Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Anne Hunter Pertle, Executive Director of the nonprofit Stand for Schools. Anne is a Lincoln, Nebraska native and a proud graduate of Lincoln Public Schools and the University of Nebraska Lincoln, from which she holds a BA in political science and French and an MS in agricultural economics. Prior to founding Stand for Schools, she spent five years in Washington, D.C., working at the U.S. Senate, the White House, and the Environmental Protection Agency, and is passionate about preserving and strengthening Nebraska's public schools so that future generations of Nebraskans can enjoy the opportunities she received. Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's set the scene by my asking you to talk about some of the trends that you are seeing in public education. Right. So I want to start by noting that that Stand for Schools is a, a policy and advocacy organization, and, and we're dedicated to advancing public education in Nebraska. And we formed in response to a very specific set of threats and challenges facing public schools in Nebraska. So I'm coming at this question from that lens. So I want to be clear about that to start. So the the threats that we formed in response to are around school privatization, which is basically using taxpayer dollars that uh, in the past have always gone to public schools in Nebraska and putting them toward um, private forms of education, which include charter schools, vouchers for private schools, um, and tax credits for donors to private school scholarship funds. Now, Nebraska has great public schools as well as great private and parochial schools and has for, for years. And there's certainly a place for all of those forms of education. But we believe that taxpayer dollars should stay in the public school system as they always have in this state because um, that's where you have public oversight of those dollars, right? We elect school boards to to manage school money in a a way that, uh, that answers to everyone and that serves all children. So to answer your question, trends in public education, privatization is one that we're very concerned about. And that is um, an area where we've seen policymakers in Nebraska try to make pretty significant departures from the way we've done things in the past in a way that we believe threatens public schools and threatens the future of public education in this state. Um, And that's that's a national trend. Nebraska is one of three states remaining that have no school privatization policies on the books. The others being North Dakota and West Virginia. Um, All other states at this point have some form of privatization um, that they're working through. And for that reason, we've got about 25 years of data from other states on how charter schools and private schools with public funding perform compared to public schools. And therefore, this is not an experiment that we have to run on Nebraska's kids. We've got 25 years of results from other states. And what they indicate is that that on the whole, those private options don't perform better, but they do hurt public schools. And notably, they increase segregation and the concentration of inequality and poverty. So before we move on to some of the issues that surround that particular movement, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that there's a a history, a quarter century history of privatization. So charter schools started in Minnesota in the early 1990s. And even as early as the the late 1980s, they were conceived and supported actually by teachers unions who saw them um, at that time as a possible antidote to what they saw as sclerotic urban school districts that were, um, you know, really resistant to change and where teachers felt that they weren't able to give the best kind of education to the kids that that they deserved. The key part about charter schools, though, was that they were going to be limited in number. They were going to be basically little laboratories where teachers might try out new instructional methods, test out what works, see what doesn't. The things that work could be shared with public schools. And the idea is that that information gleaned from charter schools would be would be kind of fed into public schools and it would make the whole system better. Charter schools as a concept sort of got hijacked for political purposes politicians in a number of places saw the opportunity to 
frankly, weaken teachers' unions by creating a lot of non-union teachers by expanding charter schools. Sort of in the in the wave of the 90s and the obsession with deregulating various kinds of markets in the United States, airlines and steel and finance and, and a whole host of other things, uh, there was this notion that reigned in the early 90s that competition is going to solve education's problems. Now, the problem with that notion is that competition produces winners and losers. And when what you're trying to produce is human beings who are fully developed, aware citizens capable of handling challenges in their lives, you can't afford to be producing a whole lot of losers. So you've talked a little bit about the early 90s and, mm -hmm. and this initial embrace of charter schools as a way to test out new concepts and best practices mm -hmm. so that the public education system at large could benefit from those little incubator mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. And then it morphed and got co-opted in a, in, in a broader system of privatization generally. Yes. So talk a little bit more then about the ongoing movement of charter schools into, you said, um, 40, 47, 40. Actually, no, there, there are, I believe five states remaining without charter schools. So 45 states have charter schools. Okay. Some form yeah. or another. So, the, so the growth in, in, in these last couple of decades is mm -hmm. movement into those states. So what's, what's this history? Yes. And it, it varies a lot place to place and state to state. Part of what makes this conversation, um, challenging and nuanced is that charter schools are not just one thing. They are pretty much whatever a state legislature says they are. And so charter schools in, say, Arizona are dramatically different from charter schools in Massachusetts, which has pretty much in an undisputed way the best charter schools in the country. The difference in their quality and performance is the amount of regulation that we put around both how many liberties, let's say, charter schools are allowed to take with the curriculum, who's out allowed to start one, how well you have to pay teachers, how well you have to treat staff, and what kinds of checks and balances there are on the way that students are being treated. What are the differences between certain types of charter schools? And maybe pick one or two to illustrate how different they can be. Sure. So charter schools at a basic level are schools that are publicly funded but privately run. And that private running of charter schools can take the form of either um, it's going to be a private board of directors, but it could be either a for-profit or a not-for-profit setup. Some states allow one model and not the other. Some states allow both. The problem either way, or the risk that you run, is that anytime you take public tax dollars out of taxpayer oversight, when you move money away from an elected school board and towards some kind of private entity, there is a very predictable set of risks related to waste, fraud, and abuse of those dollars that has played itself out in state after state. So um, Ohio is an example of a state that has very poorly regulated charter schools. And for the past few years, they have been working their way through a massive scandal where essentially their state auditor sent representatives into charter schools to actually count how many students were in attendance on a given day. And in hundreds of charter schools across Ohio, it was a third to half the number of students they reported as having uh, in attendance. And they were collecting tens of millions of dollars in state and federal tax money for students who never existed. Presumably that money went to line administrators' pockets and for a whole variety of other um, illegal and unseemly purposes. And um, that is money that, that the public schools of Ohio are never going to get back. Uh, so that's the risk you run. Uh, compare that to, say, Massachusetts, which, again, has very tightly regulated um, rules around who can start a charter school, their qualifications, the standards that that school needs to meet within a couple of years um, in terms of performance. And um, Massachusetts does a better job than many states of preventing cherry picking by charter schools of students. Too often, school choice doesn't mean parents choosing the best school for their children. It means schools choosing the best children that will raise their test scores. So Massachusetts has put some effective, reasonably effective regulations in place to try to limit some of that. Now, I think the question that anyone needs to ask if you're considering setting up a charter school system or asking yourself, do you need charter schools, is how good are your public schools currently? In Nebraska, the answer is very good overall. We have one of the highest high school graduation rates in the country. We have some of the nation's top test scores on the what's called the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And that's the 
the only standardized test that's given by the U.S. Department of Education that allows you to compare student performance both across states and through time. It's a test that's been given since the early 1960s, and it is calibrated in a way that lets us actually compare those scores over time. No other um, national exam does that. And on the NAEP, uh, Nebraska students score in the top 10 states on, on most every subject, um, generally speaking. And we have the seventh highest college going rate in the country. So in all these ways, our public schools are doing quite well. Not to say that they're perfect, not to say there's not things they can do and need to do to be better. Of course, you can always improve. But we need to weigh the risks, the known, uh, very clear risks of privatization and what happens when we start sending dollars down what can in many cases be a rabbit hole <laughs> that, that we don't have control over as taxpayers against you know, what, what challenges do we actually see in our public schools and what are the best solutions? So there's history over the last two, three decades. We've seen 45 states ad adopt some form of charter-like mm -hmm. uh, components to its educational system. Mm -hmm. And given that number, clearly this isn't necessarily a left-wing, right-wing issue because those states include Democrat and Republican-led mm -hmm. states. Walk us through a little bit some of that timeline to get to this point yeah, so you're right. This is not um, a party line issue by any means. Part of the answer to your question has has to do with tracing kind of the ideology of both parties over the last 20, 30 years. Certainly, Democrats as well as Republicans in the 90s were pretty interested in the idea of, of deregulation, of kind of letting the economy do its thing, again, of competition. And we've seen that, that that doesn't bear itself out in the way that was hoped. California has charter schools, and they are not performing well on the whole, uh, or at least certainly no better than public schools. They face the same challenges as public schools, and the state has now bifurcated its funding in a way that's really hard to go back on. And yet, you know, so often charter schools um, don't have to live up to the same kinds of uh, of rules and standards as public schools do. So one example, uh, charter schools can, can sort of close at any time of the year for any number of reasons. Either their test scores may not be high enough or they can run into financial constraints in ways that we pretty much make sure as a country that public schools don't, <laughs> given the way that we fund them and the way we oversee those funds. So there was a, a charter school in North Carolina that closed at the very beginning of the 2015 school year. They were no under, under no obligation to place those students in any other setting. It was just up to the families to scramble and try and find new educational options for their kids after the school year had already begun. So, um, you know, charter schools, as I said, began in Minnesota as this kind of teacher-led experiment. It was into the early 90s and 2000s when politicians of both parties jumped on um, frankly, another another attractive feature of charter schools for politicians is that they're far easier to close than public schools. And so they give politicians scapegoats from trying to have to solve hard problems in schools. It's much easier for a politician to say, that's a bad school, let's close it, rather than taking a look at what may be generational inequities in a neighborhood or in a city or in a state and thinking about in a comprehensive way, how do we address those and how is education part of that picture? That's a question that charter schools in too many cases allow politicians to avoid. And that's why that stand for schools, we believe that the charters don't make sense in Nebraska.
So how then, given some of these challenges and maybe some of the questionable measures of success, have charter schools nonetheless essentially become an integral component of the educational system across the country, given that 45 states have have adopted them? There have been a a number of organizations as well as politicians over the years that have latched onto charter schools and wrapped advocacy for them in the language of civil rights. So a great example of one such organization is Teach for America. You know, I've had a number of friends who have been Teach for America participants and volunteers and and not in any way to um, try to diminish their passion for for trying to teach kids. But um, I think there's a really problematic, quite frankly, white savior attitude with an organization that believes fundamentally that if we take fresh college graduates who are not education majors and place them in some of the most difficult schools in the country um, on a rotating basis, that things are going to change. I think that's pretty much the opposite approach of what we need. So so Teach for America is one example of an organization. Um, we live in such a, a a dark money world where where the source of political donations is so difficult to track um, that it's hard to even know for sure or name all the sources of funding that are going to private the privatization agenda. But a number of not just sort of traditional industry billionaires, the Koch brothers, many others, but a number of Silicon Valley billionaires now, um, Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix, has become a huge supporter of charter schools. The Gates Foundation has supported charter schools. And again, I think that comes from a misguided belief um, from folks who have been successful in the business world that competition is really what drives successful schools. Competition makes sense if you're producing computers or movies or any number of other consumer products. But when you're trying to produce fully developed, well-adjusted human beings, we can't be picking winners and losers in the same way. I have to ask then, there must be some success stories, right? So what is it that can be learned from the success stories that could be leveraged into some larger scale across Mm -hmm. the country? Mm -hmm. Well, the great news is, well, one, I will say that there are certainly fantastic charter schools out there. And second... There's nothing that charter schools can do that public schools can't do. So there are some cool examples of that in Omaha where um, the uh, Kennedy Elementary here in Omaha uh, has gone to a longer school day, a longer school year, a curriculum that has been partially informed by the Drew Charter School in Atlanta. Um, And that was an intense collaboration between Omaha Public Schools and the founders of that charter school. And, you know, They worked with the school district, worked with the teachers union to adjust the contract for teachers in that building to work longer days, longer into the school year, um, and to really deliver a lot of the same services to kids. But the key point is we're keeping those tax dollars within the oversight of the school board. And that, from a stand for schools perspective, is what we're most concerned about. So there are certainly successful models out there. I, I mentioned Massachusetts earlier. I think it's safe to make the case that charter schools in Massachusetts are those that most closely resemble public schools in terms of their governance and the way they are funded. Um, And that is a really key point. So it's, there are many innovative ways that we can try out new instructional methods, try out new curricula. um, But it's about making sure that the, the taxpayer money is being well spent. Um, that I think has been one of the greatest challenges for many charter schools across the country and where, from a stand for schools standpoint, we really think that that we need to keep things in the oversight of school boards. So we started our conversation with a question about trends in the field of public education. Mm -hmm. And part of the conversation we've had since then suggests to me that there are perhaps two perspectives. Mm -hmm. One is that public education itself has its own internal issues around best practices, new schools of thought, if you'll excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other the other track here are those trends that are happening in the world around public education, 
which could be, for example, you've alluded to issues around deregulation of industry, the globalization of business. So factors like that, combined with perhaps issues around politics and movements towards the diminution of unions and the power of unions and the desire perhaps ideologically, politicians and and otherwise, of interest groups to control the messaging that is infused into the education system. So they they seem to be issues that aren't directly within public education Mm -hmm. but are wrapped around it in some positive and and potentially nefarious ways. I think that's a really good way to put it. So there are some incredibly encouraging trends within public education itself, a recognition that we need to do better when it comes to culturally competent instruction, a recognition that we need to do better when it comes to um, treating students in a trauma-informed way, a growing recognition that all students need to see themselves represented in the curriculum and by the teachers that teach them. Um, That is something that I think public schools are looking to do a lot better than they have in the past. There's also a growing understanding of the way that trauma affects children's brains and and more broadly of the way that children's brains develop um, and teaching in a way that's responsive to that. So in more and more ways, I think schools are working to become truly more child-centric, where in the past uh, they were more adult-centric. So I think those things are really encouraging. But I think a lot of what's happening around public education is really worrisome. More and more social services, social safety net type programs are being stripped away. And schools are being asked to fill that gap with fewer and fewer resources themselves. So we are asking schools to not just be schools, but to be health clinics, to be food banks, to be mental health treatment centers. And I think every teacher and administrator I know to a person believes that schools should step up and fill gaps where they exist. That if children need services, schools need to find a way to meet kids' needs. But I think that the conversation that is too often missed is what gaps exist elsewhere in our society that we are asking too much of schools to fill. Um, And that's where things, I think, look really worrisome at the moment. And I think we've got administrations both at the state and federal level that are are focused on leading things in in the opposite direction of where they need to go. It seems to me that the stereotype of public schools is that they are left to and obliged to deal with some of the outside social ills that beset the students – and even the teaching staff and those schools have to deal with those issues and those ills as best they can, whereas charter schools endeavor to have students whose social lives outside of school and the social context they exist within has less of those ills. And so the school itself isn't having to deal with anything other than the educational content that it that it's teaching. Now, that's a big stereotype. And you could just say, yes, that's fair, or no, that's a dreadful painting of too big a picture with no nuance. It's a simplification, certainly, but I think in a, in a broad sense, it's, it's often true. I think there are, there are broadly charter schools that intentionally exclude students who have additional challenges in their home lives. And there are charter schools that really try to specifically work with those, those kids. The challenge is When you have students with severe special needs who might cost taxpayers $80,000 to $100,000 a year to educate, for comparison, average per pupil um, funding in Nebraska is about $12,000 a student. And we we do better in our investment than many states, though we still have a a ways to go. Um, It is really hard for a new charter school to take on a student who has those kinds of severe challenges and really meet them, whereas public schools not only are better equipped to handle those challenges, but are legally required to. You know, whether you've got charter schools that that have bad intentions or that have good intentions, it is a lot harder for them to educate the most difficult students. Um, And and in in a variety of ways, whether through 
um, application processes or whether through counseling out students who have behavioral issues, zero tolerance policies for minor infractions. Charter schools very often cherry pick students and and leave the public schools to to educate the rest of them. So one of the one of the current strengths that we have in Nebraska is that we've we've invested pretty well in our public schools over the years. Something we need to continue and we need to step up. But um, we've got public schools that that stack up pretty well nationally, and it's something we need to keep keep up with. So let's talk about that then. Mm -hmm. If Nebraska is one of only three holdout states. Mm -hmm. What are some of the good and bad arguments for weaving in some kind of charter-like school system here? Mm -hmm. So I think what, what advocates for charter schools would say, uh, and this is a, a truly great problem and challenge, uh, Nebraska does have one of the largest achievement gaps between black and white students of any state in the country. And there are some folks who would say, you know, the current system isn't working for, in particular, students of color, and we need to create an alternate system. I'm certainly sympathetic to that idea. If you take a look and follow the money, though, that is not the main source of advocacy for school privatization in Nebraska. It is coming primarily from the governor and primarily from... Um, outside entities that see an opportunity to turn a profit here. There are certainly passionate advocates for charter schools uh, in Omaha and elsewhere who are parents and, you know, they're entitled to their opinion. But in starting this organization and in taking on this role, what I did was to, was to take a look at the money and see where the real um, impetus and advocacy is coming from. And it is very much a top-down approach in Nebraska from folks who do not have the best intentions, either for public schools or uh, I think for children. I don't think that children are at the center of this discussion at all in Nebraska. Um, I think it has a lot more to do with, with other things. So in other words, at, at the beginning of the show, you described how charter school movement in, in its modern context began in the 90s in Minnesota. And the idea was this incubator this sort of uh, education hack lab so that we could get best practice and improve public education nationally using that. And then it got hijacked along the way. And you're suggesting that thus far it would appear in Nebraska that arguments for charter schools are cloaked in the guise of choice and uh, use the language of civil rights and point out the challenges in the public education system, for example, between white and black achievement rates. But if you just take that cloak off, you just see a profit motive behind it. That's a fair way to sum it up, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Anne Hunter-Pertle, Executive Director of the nonprofit Stand for Schools. Money can buy you 
So what about Nebraska's commitment, whether at um, a legislative body level mm -hmm. or at our community level? Mm -hmm. What is the state of our commitment to public education? The state legislature has fully funded our public schools at the level requested by the, the state's own school funding formula only three times in the last 16 years. So we've been underfunding our public schools in Nebraska for over a decade at least. What that does is it requires local property taxes levied by school boards to make up the difference. So Nebraska is the second most reliant in the country on property taxes to fund its public schools. What that does is it exacerbates the inequalities that exist um, in, in income. And so to reverse that trend, and I think, you know, there is growing rage in rural Nebraska in particular about rising property tax rates on agricultural land, particularly real estate taxes on ag land. They are very high. Folks are right to be upset. Um, but to lower property taxes, you need to find alternate sources of revenue. And we have cut income taxes in Nebraska to the tune of $800 million a year over the last 10 years. And that those, those challenges are all coming home to roost. So what I'd say is that Nebraska's public schools have remained strong overall because local school boards are committed to maintaining quality education in light of declining funding from the state legislature. However, that comes with increasing political and practical challenges uh, across the state. And so to reverse some of the troubling trends we've seen, we need to quite frankly invest in education from the state level. And that means at a start, funding the school funding formula at the full amount every year. That should, <laughs> that, that should just be a, a baseline. But we need to go beyond that too. I think when you interviewed Maddie Fennell from NSEA, she said that, you know, Nebraska doesn't jump first onto the crazy train when it comes to trends in education, but also, you know, sometimes we're not the first to try out innovative ideas either. And I think that's a dichotomy that you see. So we need to not only, I think funding the school funding formula funds a baseline level of education for every kid in the state. We need to do that, but we need to do more. We need to do more to fund, uh, school nutrition programs for students who don't have enough to eat at home. We need to fund career education to prepare kids for all different kinds of career paths. We need to fund uh, mental and behavioral health services. Uh, that's a, a growing need in Nebraska and surveys of both teachers and school administrators said that that is their number one unmet need year after year. And so we've been part of a coalition of education organizations and state senators that have introduced a suite of bills on each of these issues. Early childhood education is another huge um, opportunity for growth for Nebraska. And, you know, we'll be, we'll be doing that again this legislative session. And we need to make sure that our state senators take these issues seriously and really know what the needs are. I think a lot of folks assume that because they've been to school, they know what school is like. And very many of our leaders haven't been in a school since they themselves were students, which might be 30, 40, 50 plus years ago at this point. Um, and, and they need to update their perspective. Stand for schools. I, I want you in a minute just to talk about how it came into being mm -hmm. and in a nutshell, what it stands for mm -hmm. by way of its, um, its mission. But to be clear, what I'm hearing from you is stand for schools is in essence a supporter of public education and is skeptical and is resistant to charter schools being introduced into Nebraska. But in addition to that, you do want to hold public education accountable to improve in whatever ways are appropriate and feasible. Absolutely. That's a great way to sum it up. You mentioned the opacity of money and mm -hmm. moneyed interests. Mm -hmm. And I think in that spirit, I have to ask you, mm -hmm. where's the money behind Stand for Schools? Yes, we're primar primarily funded by the Sherwood Foundation here in Omaha. Uh, also have some support from the Cooper Foundation in Lincoln and then various um, smaller Nebraska donors who have been really generous. Those are our main sources. And I think it's really important that we be transparent 
uh, about where our money's coming from. Um, we've been transparent as long as we've been in existence, and we've we've always filed our IRS 990 forms, which is the form you have to file every year as a nonprofit, um, saying when you're where your money's coming from. And we've we've always taken that really seriously, and we'll continue to. So, so tell me then, how did Stanford Schools get created? Why was it created, and and what is, in a nutshell, its mission? Yes. So Stanford Schools is a a fairly new nonprofit um, that exists to advance public education in Nebraska. We found uh, we were formed just over two years ago. And how this came about, quite frankly, was um, I, I'm a product of Lincoln Public Schools and the University of Nebraska. My parents are both public school educators in Lincoln. And about two and a half years ago, I was uh, working at the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington on a totally different set of issues. But I was reading my hometown paper, the Lincoln Journal Star online, and I was seeing various policymakers start to threaten public schools, the public schools that had given me so much and and had given me an education that was allowing me to do what I wanted in the world. I uh, saw that being threatened and I, I quite frankly got mad and I, I wrote an opinion piece in the Journal Star opposing charter schools in Nebraska. And I kind of thought that was going to be that. Um, I was contacted by some folks out of Omaha doing work on education issues um, who put us in touch with some potential funders and, and kind of one thing led to another and over about a six-month series of conversations decided to move home to Nebraska and start Stand for Schools to do this work full-time. So that's how we got started and it was really a desire to not only defend the public education that I received but to make sure that every Nebraska kid gets that kind of opportunity. So speaking of um, how long we've been in existence, I think now's the perfect time for me to ask you, tell me about your childhood. Hmm. I had a wonderful childhood. I was incredibly lucky. Um, my my parents met at the University of Nebraska, so I joke that in some ways I owe that institution my life, uh, <laughs> uh, which is only kind of an exaggeration. Um when they started their careers, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a social worker. And then my mom um, became a stay-at-home parent when I was born. So um, I had a wonderful, loving household, and I have one younger brother. Um, we had a great experience. Our family didn't have a lot of money growing up, um, but we were incredibly rich in other ways. So we were taught very early the value and importance of education. We were told from a young age, you will go to college. <laughs> it's really important. <laughs> um, and, and I think all of that stuck with me, certainly. What was your school like? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I went to, to wonderful schools, um, elementary through, through high school. Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. I just, I had, a, I had incredible opportunities. Um, so my, my father was the principal at Lincoln Southeast High School when I was a kid. And I didn't want to go to the school where my dad was the principal. So I went to Lincoln East High School, which is where most of my friends were going anyway. And, and it happened that that school had one of the best speech and debate programs in the state uh, and, and perhaps the region. Um, and that was just an incredible stroke of luck but it's something that spoke to me and that I took advantage of. And it, it kind of gave me a, a place to fit in and something to feel good at and, and certainly influenced my later path greatly. What are some of those experiences? Maybe epiphanies, maybe this is just a slow realization, but, but what were those possible moments that shaped who you are now and have given you this passion and motivation to, to do what you're doing? Hmm. I think it's really easy as a kid to think that everyone is living like you are, right? Um, and it, it might not be until a little later that you look around the world a little bit and realize that, oh, the earth is vastly diverse <laughs> and there are a whole different set of experiences from the ones that I had that might not be any better or worse, but that are just different. And so... My junior year of college, I studied in southern France for a year. I went back 
to France the year after college um, and taught English in a middle school and a high school for a year and had a wonderful time. But it was, you know, it was really eye-opening for a Nebraska kid who had never really lived away from home before. I went to college in the same town where I grew up um, to, you know, to be out of the country and just seeing something a, a little bit different. And I think it was through some of those experiences that I, I started to realize, and of course you, you know this as a kid because you're told it and, and you read about it, but you start to experience in the world that, that not everyone has as much as you do and that there is an obligation to give back um, and that there are those opportunities. There seems to be a through line to some degree of appreciation of public service and mm-hmm. the pro-social good mm-hmm. around us. So, so tell me more about your time in Washington and at the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, mm-hmm. and some of your experiences there. Yes. Yeah, so I was working as a speechwriter to the head of the EPA for about two and a half years. And I feel like I saw some of the the ultimate highs and lows of American leadership in the world from that role. So on the good side, I had the tremendous opportunity to attend the UN Paris climate agreement negotiations in December of 2015, um, which was truly eye-opening. I mean, it was kind of like a world's fair type event. I think 40,000 people attended this two week conference over the time that it was open And I was working with some folks at the U.S. State Department to kind of showcase the ways in which the U.S. was taking action on climate change. And it really was U.S. leadership working closely with China that got that agreement done. The U.S. and China jointly announced their carbon reduction goals a year in advance of that conference, which let the rest of the world know that the world's largest economies and its largest polluters were serious about action. The first day of the conference was the largest gathering of world leaders that has ever taken place. So President Obama spoke, Xi Jinping of China spoke, virtually every head of state from 147 countries spoke, um, all signaling that they expected an agreement to be reached. And within two, two weeks, it was. That was an incredible moment to, to witness. And I feel incredibly lucky. Of course, the current administration has signaled its intention to pull out of that agreement Um, to the detriment, I think, of the U.S. and the world. On the negative side, uh, I spent about two months in Flint, Michigan, working um, as a communications specialist, helping with crisis communications as uh, Flint was experiencing its, its lead and water crisis. And certainly... The EPA fell down on the job there, but after the city and state had massively failed the people of Flint, um, what I saw was really just a lesson in how never to be a public servant. It, it's interesting, um, after doing that work and doing the work that I do now, 
I think broadly speaking, from a national perspective, the opponents of basic services, clean water and public schools are the same. Um, and the, the tremendous mismanagement that took place in Michigan that led to the, the Flint water crisis was something that enraged me personally through the time I spent there and that I vowed never to replicate in any work that, that I do. I think the, the most heart-wrenching thing in Flint was, you know, EPA was there to try and get the water system of the city into decent working shape. And for context, if you want to talk about what really happened in Flint, it's that General Motors once employed 2,000, or excuse me, 80,000 people in a city of 200,000. They now employ 5,000 people in a city that's shrunk to under 100,000. And most of the folks who could afford to get out did so a long time ago. So one of the things that's really bad for a city's water system is having a footprint that's too large for the, the population, which is exactly what Flint has. What you don't want with water is for it to stagnate, just be sitting and not moving. And that's what was happening in Flint. So um, as EPA was desperately working and essentially running the city's water plant to try and get the water to a drinkable, usable state, taking a look around the city at the tremendous other needs that existed. The schools were in terrible shape. Um, uh, nearly a third of the homes were abandoned. The neighborhoods were not safe. And to my mind, we have an obligation to each other as Americans to take care of each other and prevent those kinds of conditions from existing anywhere in this country. Um, and it seems to me that that some provision should have been made for the people of Flint back in the 80s when GM picked up and moved to Mexico. But that was never done. And even in light of the tremendous crisis they experienced in recent years, Congress really never ponied up any kind of real money to, to try and fix the city in any systemic way. Instead, the uh, water system was sort of left to fend for itself. And, and those broader investments were never made. And that's something that both broke my heart and made me very angry. So you've mentioned uh, a high of public service and the Paris Climate Accord, but you've also painted this picture of the ineptitude and incompetence and self-interest of other public servants. Mm -hmm. And that makes me want to ask you, what are the lessons that you've learned from those prior experiences that still give you faith that we should be allowing elected officials to run our education system and not hand it off to the private sphere? It's a perfectly fair question. Quite simply, I think elections matter. I think they matter tremendously. Um, and I think there is uh, unfortunately growing, I don't know if you can even call it apathy, growing despair in this country that um, oh, you know, all politicians are evil and just vote them all out and everyone's sort of equally bad and therefore we should take everything out of the hands of the public sector and hand it over to, to sort of private entrepreneurs. And I think the history doesn't bear that out well at all. Certainly, if you look at the performance of charter schools and, and students on vouchers across the country, um, you'll see that, that it's not better than public schools. But in addition... When we um, contract various public services out to private entities, um, as happened with, with Flint's water system uh, prior to the crisis, we're, we're not getting the kind, of, the kind of management that we need. And so basically, I think the real problem we have in this country is that um, our politics have become such that politicians no longer answer to their constituents in the way they once did. They answer to their donors. And until we correct that, I think we can ex uh, expect to see the incentives continue to line up in a really negative, troubling way. But it's something that can be changed. Um, not easily and, and not quickly, but my own feeling is that if I can be a part in some small way of changing that feature of our political system over the course of my lifetime, I'll have done a good job.
To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. been in conversation with Anne Hunter-Pertle, Executive Director of the nonprofit Stand for Schools, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.